Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in New York. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Americans are rapidly becoming much more upbeat about the economy, according to The Wall Street Journal. Consumer sentiment surged almost 30% since November, the biggest two-month increase since 1991, adding to gauges showing improving moods. It's a sharp turn after persistently high inflation, the lingering shock from the pandemic's destruction, and fears that a recession was around the corner had put a damper on feelings about the economy in recent years, despite solid growth and consistent hiring. Now Americans are bucking up as inflation cools and the Federal Reserve signals that interest rate increases are likely behind us. And with the solid labor market putting money in the bank accounts of freely spending consumers, recession fears for 2024 are fading. Walter, is this news or faux news? Oh, it's news, all right. And it's it's probably excellent news for the White House. Uh, don't expect the uh, Biden's approval ratings to change overnight as people's feelings about the economy improve, because usually presidential approval is a lagging indicator. That is, it takes a few months before good economic news translates into real political news. But the improving economy makes him a much, much likelier bet for reelection. And if if, let's say, the economy is continuing to do well for the rest of this year, uh, Trump coming across as kind of an angry ranter, everything is bad, the establishment has totally failed you and all of this, while people are feeling that their that their own affairs are going very well, uh, it's it's his punches won't land with with the same force. So very good news for Joe Biden, I would say. And for that matter, for the rest of us, because it's nice when we all have more money to spend. I like that. All right. Our second story. According to a senior Biden administration official who spoke to Politico, the administration's strategy to combat the Houthis is as follows, quote, the U.S. attacks on Houthi targets will degrade the militants' abilities to keep shooting at ships, as will the interdiction of vessels carrying weapons to Yemen. The redesignation of the Houthis as terrorists will increase the sanctions pressure on them, starving fighters of the resources that bankroll operations. Eventually, the official continued, regional countries and other nations with an interest in open sea lanes, China, for example, will demand an end to the shipping crisis that has inflated prices and imperiled lives. Meanwhile, Israel's plan for more targeted operations in Gaza could mean fewer civilian casualties, which would weaken the Houthis' case for rising to the Palestinians' defense. An end to the war would remove that rallying cry, close quote. So, Walter, we bomb and sanction the Houthis. China stands with us. Israel ends the war and the Houthis are, I guess, satisfied or a cry uncle. Is this leaked White House strategy news or faux news? Well, I think it's it's not faux in the sense that is what they think. I mean, you know, it takes a certain dexterity to work in a White House because when you remove the terror, terrorist designation from the Houthis, this is an act of brilliant, courageous statesmanship that's going to bring peace to the Middle East. And then when you reimpose it, this is yet another example of brilliant, inspired statesmanship that's going to bring peace to the Middle East. So, um, you know... The news behind the news, let's say, is that the administration's policies in the Middle East have dismally flopped. It's floundering around now looking for a plan. Probably by this point, we're to plan D. 
plans B and C have already gone up uh, in, in, in flames. So, um, you know, will this work? The Houthis are pretty resourceful. I think a lot will depend on um, an effective naval blockade on new weapons. Although, again, what you'll likely see is the Houthis will just keep firing rockets till they don't have any more. Uh, so may not shift overnight. And this notion that eventually China will rally uh, to our side on this is uh, it's hopeful. I'm glad that that every morning they wake up with their optimism renewed and their faith in mankind restored. But uh, I would say we are we remain in a very difficult position in the Middle East. And uh, the Biden administration, while it has some good goals in mind, like avoiding war in uh, with Iran and bringing some kind of stability to the Israeli-Palestinian relationship, who wouldn't want those things? Um, it's not clear to me yet that they've they've figured out how to get there. Just to follow up on the bit about China, I mean, if the Houthi attacks have been disrupting international trade and commerce so severely, why has stopping them, at least so far, been almost exclusively a job for the American and British militaries? Like, of, of all things, you'd think this wouldn't just be a matter for the Americans to solve almost unilaterally. Why does it seem like another instance of, you know, if the Americans intervene and succeed, China and the rest of the world benefit. If we don't intervene or intervene poorly, the rest of the world complains. I think a lot of listeners might wonder, like, why is it always like this? Well, I mean, if China were the global hegemon, China would be the one that everybody would point the finger to when something was go was going wrong. And then everybody would free ride on China's efforts. You know, the downside of that for everybody is they then have to live in a world that operates according to Chinese rules, because uh, he who does things like protecting international common goods, like free freedom of, of trade on the seas, freedom of navigation, um, has a disproportionately loud voice in setting global rules. Myself, I think it's actually better not only for us, but better for most others if if the U.S. is the country that has that voice. It's not just that, you know, when we do that, we certainly write, we, we try at least to write rules that benefit us, but it's also because our, our interests in an open system actually do coincide with those of many other countries. So I think it's not simply American interest that um, makes the idea of America as the, as the primary global power uh, a good one, but um you know, I think what a lot of people are 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 looking at who who have become much more skeptical about American involvement globally is they ask, well, have we actually done such a great job in writing rules that that work for the United States? And and here I think we have to candidly say no. You know, big example I think would be admitting China into the WTO without developing the institutional basis in the WTO to contain Chinese bad behavior or in some other way on our part failing to do that. Probably NATO would be a stronger alliance if there were some kind of minimum required commitment in the treaties for if you want to be a NATO ally, you have to do X. So I think the, the answer to that is not for America to just give up and wait to see what new rules China wants to give the world, but rather think much harder and more carefully about what the rules that we write should be like 
And then how do we use our power and use our, our, our unique global position to get our allies to, to accept uh, more, a more realistic uh, set of rules, rules of the road to safeguard things like international commerce. All right. Final story of the week. Dozens of papers from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, an affiliate of Harvard Medical School, are being retracted or corrected after a freelance data sleuth discovered that they are, quote, hopelessly corrupt with errors. This includes 57 papers between 1997 and 2017, co-authored by the Institute's president and three other researchers, which covered the basic biology of cancer development and appeared in a range of top-tier peer-reviewed journals. All four researchers have faculty appointments at Harvard Medical School, making this the latest tranche of misconduct allegations leveled at Harvard researchers. Walter, is it news or faux news? Well, I have to say from, from my own undergraduate days at Yale, I viewed Harvard with great suspicion. And it is lovely to see all of my worst suspicions confirmed. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, everyone knew, everyone has always known that place is a fraud. Look, I think uh, we have reached, the American Academy is in a lot of trouble. And uh, we've seen Harvard does have, I think, a corrupt, a, a, a culture of laxity about faculty. The fact that you can have someone who's even, someone could even credibly allege something like plagiarism in their work. That should have been such an absolute, like, flashing red light. No, this person shouldn't be on the faculty. No, this person shouldn't be president of the university, right? The fact that that they're not all fully aware that scholarly integrity is the foundation of everything that they're trying to do. And people do sometimes make the joke that Harvard is a hedge fund with a small research institution attached to it. Let's just say the managers of the hedge fund need to pay a little bit more attention to that research faculty. But beyond that, the huge scandal, every editor-in-chief of these magazines that publish this stuff, if they had any decency, they would quit. They would resign. The boards would fire them if they didn't. This deep, deep insider corruption in the United States of America is a mortal threat to everything that holds our society together, that keeps our freedom going. You know, the founding fathers were pretty clear on this. When a people loses its virtue, it loses its freedom. And what we are seeing among this self-dealing, self-satisfied American elite, and let me remind our, our listeners that unlike all those other people that go to Davos, I, I, Walter Russell Mead, am a fully paid up member in good standing of the American people, okay? Just in case <laughs> there was any doubt on that score. Uh, if we cannot, if the American elite cannot police itself and will not police itself, then other people are going to police us. And if you wonder why so many people out there think that Donald Trump is the answer to our republic's problems, Harvard just needs to take a good look in the mirror and realize that it is a leading contributor to the success, not only today of Donald Trump, but in the future of many, many worse politicians and worse movements. This is all on a corrupt, stupid, self-destructive elite that has lost touch with the foundations that legitimate its own power and privilege. 
Just one follow-up. I mean, you, so you alluded to Claudine Gay's resignation as Harvard president after facing allegations of plagiarism. I remember last year, Harvard Business School placed the well-known professor on administrative leave after accusations that her work contained falsified data. This week, Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, uh, unleashed his fury on the university's new task force on anti-Semitism for electing as head of the task force a pretty vocally anti-Zionist professor well-known for accusing Israel of apartheid, settler colonialism, minimizing anti-Semitism, and so on. So you, you talked about the problems of higher ed in general, but insofar as there's something kind of particularly wrong with Harvard right now, how much does that matter? I mean, there's so many other great universities in America, how important is it to to the United States that Harvard kind of recover from from the rut that it's in right now? Look, Jeremy, I actually think that the difference between Harvard and other universities is not that Harvard behaves worse than they do. It's that we pay more attention to what Harvard does. Most of us look at at the average American university with an expression of stupefied boredom. You know, do I really want to know more about the inner workings of the administration of, you know, dozens of American colleges and universities? No, I do not. And I think I speak for the readers and consumers of American media generally. Uh-oh, you know, breaking headline, professor at Slippery Rock State College, you know, uh, has uh, misattributed a citation in their latest peer-reviewed article in some journal no one has ever heard of. Okay, that's boring. It's boring. Uh, but I do think that that Harvard is not uniquely cursed. It is uniquely visible. And certainly the ideology um, that that you know that considers misgendering a capital crime but thinks threatening to kill Jews falls into a gray zone. That's not just something that Harvard has invented on its own. That is pervasive. So um, I think what what this does is it gives us a, a better understanding of you know what would what would you see if you turned the microscope onto other campuses. And what, for that matter, would you see if you turned the microscope on to say the the rampant self-dealing here in my own beautiful city of Washington, D.C., where you'll have husbands and wives with interlocking careers and interests and nobody raises uh, a question because nobody wants that kind of topic explored because it would come home and bite them, plus make them unpopular with all of their friends. So it's only, you know, when... When the media wants to get somebody like Clarence Thomas, they suddenly look into, oh, my goodness, he has a wife and she has a professional life and, 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 you know, you could find that in so many powerful Washington couples. One is a journalist, one works for the government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, the American elite is now convinced that it can act with almost impunity, uh, that you can have a wife covering her husband's field, not her husband's office, but her husband's field, or vice versa, uh, in journalism, and no one cares. All right. So, you know, I've never thought, say, that Savonarola was the answer to the problems of corruption in uh, early modern Florence. But if you don't do something to curb this rampant, rampant, soft corruption, 
that is actually at this moment the defining element of the culture of all virtually all American elite institutions, um, then you're going to see two things. One, you're going to see popular anger surge against these things, often in destructive, ignorant ways, because you have a lot of people who don't know how these things institutions should work really angry at the way they do work well they they won't necessarily be able to reform do reforms with a scalpel it'll be with a pitchfork a torch and a sledgehammer but then on the other hand what you get what you certainly see in many ways is declining performance of american institutions because the standards have gotten so lax again harvard's grading and in general you know grade inflation is not just something that happens in undergraduate liberal arts colleges grade inflation and soft corruption are the norms for the way the american elite lives today and we all give each other a's um we all sort of you know go, what is it get along what is it go along to get along that is you know, I think the boomers really kind of elevated this into the art form, but maybe that's the one form, one thing that successor generations are uncritically buying into from the boomers. And it magnifies class differences. It um, it corrupts the functioning of our key uh, org institutions, and it undermines the political legitimacy of virtually every institution of leadership in the United States. It is grim. It is not getting better. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit like you can see nature and nature's God are sending us warning after warning. You know, this is, you know, if you, if you don't repent, I'm going to do this. And then we don't repent. And this, you know, Harvard gets rattled scandal after scandal, but they don't repent. And they're going to be hit by worse scandals. You can, you know, I tend to look at things like this, like divine providence. Others may just see it as the workings out of the of of the laws of nature. But when you lose your moral compass, you stop going in a good direction. And when you start making bad choices because you have no moral compass left, things work worse and worse for you. That's where we are. All right, that does it for this week's news, but it's a perfect segue into the big conversation. So speaking of the breakdown of major American institutions, Walter, there was a relatively recent Gallup poll that found that Americans' confidence in many of our societal institutions are at or approaching all-time lows. So confidence in small business and the military are still pretty high at around 60 to 65%. But then you go on down the line and the rest are not only slipping below 50%, in a lot of cases actually in the low double digits, but the, this trend is accelerating downward over the last few years. So the police, the medical system, Supreme Court, banks, public schools, the presidency, big tech, organized labor, news media, big business, Congress, of course, at the bottom as usual. I mean, we just spoke mainly about higher ed and the Ivy League, but I guess my question here is, is this kind of what you'd expect of a society going through the kinds of major technological and economic changes that you've written about before in Tablet and elsewhere? Or is there something more fundamental and possibly irretrievable 
breaking down in America. Well, I'm not sure that those are those. Why can't those both be true? Uh, but Jeremy, I uh, don't think, see that as either or. Uh, but look, I think there are two factors at work here. One certainly is as the world moves from a much, you know, as we move from being a mature industrial society, industrial democracy, to being a very, very early phase information democracy. Um, a lot of things change in ways that no one in our society really understands. You know, what's AI going to do? You talk to 100 experts, you get 100 different opinions, none of which will probably turn out to be right. Or if one does, it will be, be by pure chance, not because this analyst is smarter than all the others. So, you know, again, it's like COVID. You get a new disease coming up out of nowhere or, you know, possibly out of some kind of deviously funded lab, who knows. But in any case, you don't know how this virus is going to work. You don't know how it's going to mutate and so on and so on. And so all this enormous array of experts and institutions that we have start giving out a lot of advice, much of which turns out later on to have been very bad advice and often the opposite of what we should have done. People look at that performance and they say, okay, you know, these guys may know more than I do about vi virology, but they don't know enough more than I do um, for me to believe what they say. Uh, and that, you know, that's just, that's a reality. In that sense, it's nobody's fault except maybe the fault of people who by habit want to continue to demand the authority that that you rightly have when you have an expertise that actually, you know, when the parent says to the little kid, don't touch that hot stove, the parent's authority is real because it is grounded in real knowledge. And if you follow their advice, you will not suffer. All right. But when we, but as our institutions, as our experts become less capable, that doesn't go straight to zero. Right. So it's not sort of, oh, you know, and some but some people do then overreact and jump. OK, all of them are know nothing or. Oh, they sure they do know everything, but they're evil. So they're, you know, they know everything about COVID and they're just trying to tell me this because they are evil and uh, they want to make me pay. That's rarely the case. Stupidity is almost always a better explanation than than evil, um, almost always. So you have that whole set of things that are eroding confidence in institutions. And really not a lot can be done about it except for institutions and experts to incorporate a new degree of modesty and diffidence in their self-presentation, much as you see, Jeremy, that I do with my you know, humble demeanor. So uh, you have that. But then I think you also have this other thing that we were talking about earlier, this, um, the corruption uh, that has uh, entered into our, our expert class, uh, the sense that uh, we should not hold other people accountable. You know, again, this idea that peer-reviewed journals can publish fraudulent research for years, but no editor or, for that matter, peer reviewer in that group should suffer any personal or career consequences, whatever. That's an insane view. It's deeply destructive. And so when you add these two things together, 
the world has changed in ways that actually make it harder for any of our leadership institutions or political leaders to do their jobs well. Uh, and at the same time, the moral character of the people in these institutions has, has got grown very slack. Uh, then you have, I think, that that's a pretty good description of what covers a lot of what we're facing. And I think it, it very much does explain those poll results. You know, and, and people who say, oh, it's all social media, you know, uh, and, you know, it, it was like if Zuckerberg were only a pauper and Facebook didn't exist or or TikTok or whatever didn't exist, everything would be fantastic. It's just not true, because, again, because people with good reason believe that our elites are both less competent and less honest than they used to be. What that means is that things that the, the that they tell you are now suspect. So this is, I think, one reason that, you know, you see what 20% of young Americans don't think the Holocaust was real. You know, this is, I don't think we can say that some genetic change happened 30 years ago and people started becoming more evil or more stupid, um, but rather a progressive decline in all the things, you know, if you've got an establishment that's going wolf, wolf, you you have this problem that when there, you know, a lot of times they do that and there is no wolf. And so then when they cry wolf and, and there actually is a wolf where they say anti-Semitism leads to terrible things and you have to guard against it, but they've lost credibility. Uh, the natural skepticism of the human mind is going to revolt at simply obeying the dictates of people who you have good reason to believe are not that good at what they do. Final question. We've talked before about another era in American history when there was a lot of kind of creative destruction in the American economy and society and politics, basically getting from the failures of Reconstruction to the Gilded Age and then to the Progressive Era. I mean, what exactly carried us through that half century or so? Was it simply massive economic growth? Was it letting new technologies work their way through society and the economy? Was it eventually getting far-sighted political leadership like Teddy Roosevelt? I mean, what was it? Well, it's a mix. Um, I think ultimately what got us through those years was not the wisdom of the American elites, but the dynamism of the American people. Now, you notice I don't say the wisdom of the American people, because actually between the end of the Civil War and, and say, the assassination of McKinley, that was not an age of particular wisdom in America, you know, among the, the people. But what, it, what, what remained the case was that American society did remain open to new technologies. A guy like Thomas Edison could make a huge fortune by figuring out new gadgets that did things that people wanted done. Uh, and we didn't have, uh, you know, a bunch of nanny state regulars saying these new light bulbs that could be dangerous. So let's do 50 years of study on these new light bulbs before we unleash them. these bicycles. You could have a lot of accidents with a bicycle. You know, and they should, you know, they should have padded seats and, and, you know, and, you know, and no bicycles until you have helmets, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and there were a lot of electric electricity accidents and fires and, and a lot of bike and car crashes in those years. But on the whole, the risk taking uh, dynamism of society 
along with strong laws that protected private property and allowed you to get rich if you did things that worked, uh, I think pulled America through a time when our national leadership really did not have very clear ideas about what the country needed or where to go. Okay, so in some ways, whether whether and how quickly we get through this new era of weak governance and weak elites uh, and social dysfunction, I think is going to depend on the extent to which American society has has kept that dynamism. Again, it's a kind of a weird thing that in America to be conservative in the sense of wanting to conserve core features of your national heritage and tradition actually is revolutionary because what you try, what at least I and my more conservative moments want to want to protect is this American capacity for dynamism, which is an extraordinarily powerful revolutionary force. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. We have a reader request again this week, Walter, from someone who asked to be identified only as CJ Cherry fan from Oregon. And he, I, or she, I guess, wants to know your favorite sci-fi novels and novelists. Well, uh, you know, good news for CJ Cherry fan is I am a big CJ Cherry fan myself. I, I love her work and I have read almost all of it. And there's a lot to read, but let me just say first that really for me, ever since I was a kid, science fiction has been has been what made me curious about human society and helped frame my thinking about human society. It helps you imagine society structured along very different technological or cultural bases than your own. This turns out to be an excellent way to train your mind to understand and appreciate cultures uh, different from your own or eras different from your own. In a sense, history is science fiction in that in trying to say, understand ancient Rome, which again, I understand all of us men think about constantly, (laughs) but um, uh, in a way you're sort of asking yourself, imagining how a civilized society without a lot of the technological aids that we count on for granted, how it functions. And this is how you you begin to construct a picture out of all the sort of archaeological remains and inscriptions and books of what what that what that was like. Uh, and it also helps you, I think, think about how change affects a society. One of the things I really like about Cherry's work is that a lot of the drama of her books takes place in her characters' heads. Uh, they're asking themselves, you know, okay, what's going on here? And generally speaking, they're trying to understand very, very strange alien actors or technologies um, or forces that have very little data. And out of it, they have to generate a mental picture of what it is that they're encountering. They often make mistakes along the way. Reading those books is a very good way to prepare yourself for life in the 21st century. Now, there are, I mean, there are a lot of other authors that I really like. Um, Ursula Le Guin, I think, is is really a, a terrific uh, novelist. Um, but I like some of the classics, too. Um, 
Robert Heinlein is just a lot of fun. You could do a lot worse than feed your kids a a diet of some of Heinlein's books intended for younger readers. I would, uh, you know, go a little, uh, be a little careful because sometimes he verges off into things you may not actually want your kids to be paying a lot of attention to. You know, uh, Red Planet, uh, some of his other books are just fantastic books to get kids started reading. And I know with my nephews and nieces, I've always tried to encourage them to start reading science fiction. If you have kids, try to get them to do that too. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to Will Cummings at Hudson and my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next week. And until then, please consider rating the podcast and leaving a review. 